Radio New Zealand's Insight. This year's Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting in Sri Lanka posed a diplomatic challenge above and beyond those that normally surface. Those due to attend had to grapple with the question, is it better to engage with a country accused of past and ongoing human rights abuses or shut them out of the international community? After decades of a brutal civil war between Tamils fighting for an independent state and the largely Sinhalese Sri Lankan government, the nation is now trying to present itself as a progressive and prosperous country. As part of that image makeover, Sri Lanka hosted this year's Commonwealth Heads of Government Summit and welcomed more than 50 countries to its capital. However, questions about whether Sri Lanka should be able to take up the chair of the Commonwealth dominated the event, while allegations of war crime and ongoing intimidation and harassment go unanswered. I'm Jane Patterson, and having travelled to Sri Lanka to cover this year's meeting, I look at what critics say is still happening in that country and New Zealand's response. Prime Ministers of Canada and Mauritius boycotted the meeting in protest and under domestic pressure the Indian Prime Minister also decided not to attend. But the Sri Lankan President Mahinda Rajapaksa met the criticisms head on in his opening remarks to the summit. We in Sri Lanka are stepping into a new era of peace, stability and renewed economic opportunities that have been long denied to my people due to the menace of terrorism that existed for nearly three decades. In ending terrorism in 2009, we asserted the greatest human right, the right to life. New Zealand prides itself on having an independent and principled foreign policy, which it's highlighting as part of its bid for a non-permanent seat on the United Nations Security Council. The Prime Minister John Key was asked repeatedly why New Zealand supported Sri Lanka becoming the chair of the Commonwealth and the justification for his attendance in Colombo. The general view is that there have been war crimes that have taken place on both sides. It was a very bloody civil war. I mean, this is a really, really difficult environment for people, and war brings out the worst, um, you know, acts of sort of human activity. Um, on the other side of the coin, I mean, it has changed here um, in one sense. That I mean, just I just asked my my local protection guy, well, you know, what's life like here now? What's the president thought? And you know, what do they think of him? And, and of course, here in Colombo, they like him. And they said, well, when we used to go out, he said that he would go on the bus, his wife would go on the train, and the kids would go on a van. Because every time they went out, they were convinced they'd be subject to a suicide bomb attack. And, you know, when you live a life like that, it's no life at all, is it? So that doesn't make um, war crimes right and atrocities right and the, and the horrible acts that will have taken place. I mean, I think everyone just has to acknowledge that it's happened. Um, and somehow, you know, those issues also have to be dealt with. Our people being killed every day. There's 400,000 people they have displaced. As the last months of the civil war played out in 2009, Sri Lankans living in New Zealand staged a two-day vigil, lamenting the lack of international response to what they described as a genocide being committed in their home country. 
More than 100,000 people are believed to have died between 1983 and 2009 in the fighting between Tamil Tiger separatists concentrated in the north and government forces. Labour's Foreign Affairs spokesperson David Shearer worked in Sri Lanka for Save the Children from 1989 to 1991. And the war was a really brutal one. When I look back on it, the Tamil Tigers, who were very well trained, war uniforms, carried cyanide capsules around their necks. Uh, if they were caught and uh, captured, they took the cyanide and killed themselves. I didn't know of too many prisoners that were taken and, you know, in a sense, kept alive. So there was virtually no prisoners in this war. It was extremely brutal. The Sri Lankan army had bases on the ground, but these were bases with effectively barbed wire and, and sandbags, say a couple of hundred metres across. And beyond that, uh, there was, it was a Temple Tiger held territory, and they were, they were resupplied by helicopters dropping supplies into them from 2,000 feet up, which was a sort of the effective range of a heavy machine gun at that time. So moving in and around that area, um, it was quite difficult. But the devastation was, was really real. I mean, there was, everything had shut down, the towns, the electricity, the, the water pumping and all that sort of thing had more or less closed down. Diesel supplies were really, really short. And the, the people up there had kind of concocted this kerosene and coconut oil concoction that they ran their cars on. It was pretty primitive stuff and pretty tough. Mr Shearer says the Sri Lankan government, dominated by the Sinhalese majority, was fighting to prevent the country effectively being split into two states. So they were fighting for keeping the unity of their country. The Tamils and the Tamil Tigers, or not necessarily all the Tamils, but certainly the Tamil Tigers were fighting for separation in a, in a separate Tamil homeland. Those were obviously completely opposing sort of philosophies. Terrorism's a very loaded word. I mean, you could say that the Tamils were freedom fighters if you wanted to, or you could say that they were terrorists. No doubt there was atrocities committed on all sides. The Tamil Tigers killed Rajiv Gandhi, for example, in a bomb attack. They killed the, the president of Sri Lanka in a bomb attack as well. The issue really was at the end of the war, when the Tamil Tigers had their backs to the wall and the taps, the money taps that had been supplying them had started to dry up because they were classified as a you know, terrorist organisation. The Tamil Tigers were fighting desperately. The government bombarded the Tamil Tigers despite the fact that many of the places that they were were in civilian areas, hospitals and schools, etc., so that many, many civilians died. It was indiscriminate shelling by the Sri Lankan government. On the other hand, the Tamil Tigers deliberately, if you believe the reports that we've heard, were putting people into those situations and almost putting them, having them as human shields. So effectively there was, there was wrong on both sides. But the Sri Lankan government, nevertheless, was really heavy-handed in the way that they finished the war off and since then have gone around and seized people and they've never come back again. So there's ongoing human rights abuses since then. See, this is girls in one of the children's home. Ian Malati was born in Sri Lanka but was sent to New Zealand as a child. She's returned several times and described the artillery attacks on a children's home she was working in in Mulativa in 2009. And children died there, you know. Three-year-olds screaming in the bunker, you know. The artillery shelling, by then the technology was so great. It was not error or collateral damage. It was deliberate. 
you know, hospitals, you know, nothing was supposed to be avoided. Everything is a target. Where I stayed in the children's home, you know, just a few meters from there was a school. And uh, the hospital, Muladiv Hospital, they had already been attacked and they moved part of their section to the grounds in the school. So this is a school and a hospital. And I saw patients, you know, attacked and their saline running, you know, was loaded onto motorbikes or whatever available and taken away because the hospital came under attack. The world not only watched it, but it's taking so long to see what has happened. Steve Crawshaw is with Amnesty's International Directorate and was in Colombo while the Commonwealth meeting was being held. He says Sri Lanka cannot move forward until the wrongs of the past have been addressed. We've now had four years since the very, very bloody end of the civil war, in which we saw in that last phase tens of thousands of civilians killed with the targeting of hospitals and many other things. We shouldn't forget there were very, very serious violations and crimes by the Tamil Tigers on the other side, but... This isn't a game of who's done what and let's balance things out. The fact is the government forces also committed very serious violations and serious violations continue. They have not made domestic investigations. So at a certain point, the time has to run out on that. Not only have they not done the domestic investigations, which is always, of course, the most preferable to do things closer to home, but they're in complete denial. You only need to glance at any of the government statements where they say none of these things are true. Not a single civilian was killed. Those who say differently, those here in Sri Lanka, whether Sinhala or Tamil, are accused of being traitors to the nation. Mr Crawshaw says it's not just past abuses Amnesty's concerned about, but the ongoing harassment, intimidation and in some cases abduction of those who question or criticise the Rajapaksa regime. The dangers for those who speak out are very real indeed. And those pressures have taken different forms over the years. Dozens have been forced to flee the country. Fifteen journalists have been killed in, in recent years. And then you have the disappearances, that phrase that became famous when it started with the military regimes in Latin America, but we've seen around the world and where Sri Lanka has one of the most notorious track records now in the world, what's called the the white vans problem because notoriously the white vans come along you're bundled into the white van everybody knows the emblematic power of this and what's interesting now is that the very knowledge of the existence of the white vans terror if you like acts as a a very strong suffocating element don't you dare speak out or you too might end up in a white van in other words perhaps never being seen again i think to turn away from a problem like that is, for me, close to being incomprehensible by government leaders. This is an absolutely beautiful country. It's a fabulous country. It can do great things as well. At the moment, it has a government which is not allowing the country to do great things because it doesn't want real truths to be spoken, and truths is what every country needs. On the third story of a narrow building in downtown Colombo, I met with a group of women whose sons were abducted and never seen again. This Muslim woman tells of how both of her sons, aged 30 and 34, were taken in 2010. When my son was returning with his child from the school, they have been taken by a white van and it came 
to my place also. So then my other son was there and these people abducted that son also. She believes the motive was financial. My two children were doing business and they are going to India and coming back with buying and selling. So the police was demanding ransoms from them as their business, but they refused. I think they were abducted because of that, before refusing to pay ransoms to the police. The 63-year-old Tamil woman broke down as she spoke about her son's disappearance from the Indian-style cafe he owned. She sat sobbing silently as the translator finished the story. So one day in the evening when he was in the counter, someone came and asked, he wants to meet him, and he asked to come out. So he went out from the shop, and he was abducted by a white van. So next day they got a call saying that her child is with them. They want her to deposit 100,000 rupees, Sri Lankan rupees, and account number was given. So she deposited... Two, uh, 50,000 in two installments. And then again next day, they called and said, ask them to deposit another 100,000 rupees. Then she has said, okay, I will do that, but let me speak to my child. Then they didn't uh, react to that. Then after that, no news. The son of this Muslim woman was a tuk-tuk driver who disappeared while driving a Tamil passenger in 2006. So when he was taking him, a white van came and abducted the Tamil passenger. So when he was abducted, this Tamil passenger has shouted, brother, I came with you, now they are abducting, now they are taking me away, please help me. So then he just kept the three-wheeler and tried to speak to the people who were on the white van asking why they are taking him away by force. Then what happened? The people inside the van said, okay, then you also come with us. And he was also taken by force and put into the van. This was told to us by the neighbors who were there in the place where he was abducted. And from there, it is transported to the Minchiling Centre every day. Okay, so those three, and it's each now, you said 150. As part of New Zealand's attendance at the meeting, the Foreign Minister Murray McCulley travelled to the north of Sri Lanka, where the last bloody months of the civil war were played out. His first stop was a tear fund project that New Zealand contributes to, aimed at getting the Sri Lankan dairy industry back on its feet. Having returned to the capital, Colombo, Mr McCulley told reporters that being involved in projects like the Dairy Cooperative is part of New Zealand's broader strategy. The prospect of uh, progress is going to be much better if the international community does remain engaged. That includes New Zealand, hence our willingness to get involved in the dairy project in what was one of the, the scenes of one of the bloodiest battles up there. In fact, um, I laid a foundation stone for a new milk chilling sta station up there and someone said to me there, there were two and a half thousand bodies just over there. Uh, so it, it was, it's the centre of one of the bloodiest battles uh, in, the, in the war. And we can do some things to help rebuild, but most of it, much of it is going to have to be done by local people who are not all in the space 
to make that happen here. Trade between New Zealand and Sri Lanka has expanded rapidly over the past decade. Exports to Sri Lanka have increased from $117 million in 2000 to $275 million last year, largely driven by higher demand for dairy products, in particular milk powder. Mr McCulley says New Zealand is not an apologist for the Sri Lankan regime and rejects the suggestion its stance is influenced by the need to protect future trade. I think the, the view expressed by the human rights groups that more should be done and more quickly is pretty hard to argue with. But on the, on the dairy front, we have a particular skill set in New Zealand in the dairy sector. These guys want it. Economically, the country needs to become more self-sufficient. But also, um, they have these communities, particularly those affected by the conflict in the north, that badly need to establish an economic base for themselves to rebuild their lives. And the dairy sector is one of the quickest ways that many people can do that. And we need to have the capacity to, uh, to make that happen with the government and with other agencies. So it's a practical fact of life. If we want to help the people, we've got to work with the government. The Green MP Jan Logie also visited northern Sri Lanka, but the week before Mr McCulley. We heard um, stories of ongoing rape and sexual abuse that's conducted by the army at a very senior level. We heard stories of very planned and consistent land grabs that are happening from the government and the armed forces, the undermining of the local economy, taking of children from their families. So it was a very consistent picture of the government using this time to actually move in and destabilise the um, Tamil community in the north. And you consider those stories to be credible? Yeah. I mean, they were from members of parliament and um, people with long histories. And it's hard, you know, on some things I may disagree, but it is hard to kind of look a Catholic priest in the eye and hear the stories from them and, and not find that credible. We want international victory! We want international victory! Families of those who have disappeared appealed to Mr McCulley during his visit and also the British Prime Minister David Cameron who travelled to the same region in the days leading up to the summit. Afterwards, Mr Cameron urged Sri Lanka to move further and faster to address allegations of war crimes. I think it's important to shine a spotlight on what's happened in this country and to uh, speak up against uh, abuses that have taken place and make sure that those people in the north of the country do have a proper voice. Now, there's been some progress. There have been elections in the north, and that is welcome. But there still hasn't been enough uh, truth-telling about what happened, and I think it's important to go there and to make these points. The next day, Mr Cameron laid out a specific timetable. Let me be very clear, if that investigation is not completed by March, then I will use our position on the UN Human Rights Council to work with the UN Human Rights Commissioner and call for a full, credible and independent international inquiry. Ultimately, all of this is about reconciliation. It's about bringing justice and closure and healing to this country. The senior Sri Lankan government minister, Nimal Sirupala Silva, dismissed Mr Cameron's comments. We believe that there is no reason for an international inquiry. Within a short uh, span of time, we have done our best in the reconciliation process. The rehabilitation process has taken place. And an uh, enormous amount of money has been spent on the north. And uh, most of the allegations are unfounded. One consequence of Chogham, however, was that international reporters had the opportunity to directly question President Mahinda Rajapaksa. You meet Prince Charles later today. It's his first Chogham. When you shake his hand, will you then admit to him at least 
Sri Lanka's dire human rights record? And will you promise an independent investigation into alleged war crimes? We will discuss with him. And uh, you must remember that there we have, uh, for the last 30 years, we suffered. There were a lot of human rights violations. And the civilians were killed, the children, the women. I mean, 2000, not only 2009, for 30 years, they were getting killed. People were getting killed for 30 years. At least after 2009, we have stopped it. There is no killing at the moment. Now, we have a legal system in Sri Lanka. And if anyone who wants to complain about a human rights violation in Sri Lanka, whether it is torture, whether it is rape, we have a system. If there is any violations, we will take action against anybody. Anybody. I am ready to do that. I mean, we are very open. We have nothing to hide. The heir to the British throne, Prince Charles, attended the Commonwealth meeting for the first time in place of the Queen. In his opening remarks, he made no direct reference to the issues that would dominate the Colombo summit. Each one of us is here because of the hope and the trust we place in the Commonwealth to bring that touch of healing to our troubles and deliver the very best future for our people. Among the family of Commonwealth nations, including in New Zealand, there has been criticism of the decision to allow Sri Lanka to take up the chairmanship of the Commonwealth. One of those critics is Labour's foreign affairs spokesperson, David Shearer. I don't think the Commonwealth should have ever agreed to Sri Lanka becoming uh, its chair. Um, and I think it undermines and belittles the Commonwealth's principles of being standing up for democracy and standing up for human rights. I think the, the Chogham having the conference in Sri Lanka in a weird way has actually thrown more light on a situation that people in some ways had pushed to one side and, you know, and looked at other things around the world. Um, and it's brought out exactly what the Sri Lankan government uh, has not done in terms of its efforts to, for reconciliation. So it's, it's been a disaster, a PR disaster for the Sri Lankan government. Nevertheless, uh, what we have to do now is to be working with the Sri Lankan government to make sure that it follows through on what it said it's going to be doing in terms of reconciliation. The Greens' Jan Logie takes a similar view of New Zealand's support of Sri Lanka as the Commonwealth chair. How embarrassing. I, I mean, I think there's a couple of questions that come out of it. One, about the future of the Commonwealth and any um, credibility it may have in raising human rights issues. <laughs> I think it really needs to be deeply questioned. I, I don't think it's at all valid now, considering the actions of the Commonwealth in, in Sri Lanka. The other one, of course, is around, well, what support as an international community can we now offer to the Sri Lankan people to ensure their protection and human rights. Kamali Sharma is the Secretary-General of the Commonwealth. He defended the decision to let Sri Lanka take over the chairmanship and rejects suggestion the move reflects badly on the principles the Commonwealth purports to uphold. Mr Sharma says the Commonwealth is working directly with Sri Lanka on the issues he acknowledges are sensitive and difficult. If you work with a member state on the, on the principle that advancement can take place by jointly agreeing that the way forward is required in terms of the commonly subscribed principles of the Commonwealth by all member states, then you can, over a wide front, make advances. And we are doing it, as I said, in the field of uh, independence of judiciary. We're doing it in the field of security and the field of uh, torture. 
field of reconciliation. Amnesty's Steve Crawshaw says Sri Lanka is now the chair and nothing can be done about that. But he says at least that means the rest of the world now has its attention fixed on the Sri Lankan government and its actions. I think it's fair to say that uh, Sri Lanka is now feeling under greater pressure than ever before. So four years ago, although tens of thousands of civilians had been killed in such a short time in what the a UN report itself described as an assault on the entire regime of international law, there was very, very little pressure on that today. And when Rajapaksa gained the right to host this uh, Commonwealth Summit here in 2013, in other words, two years ago, I think he felt pretty triumphant and felt this was going to be a real parade of haven't we done well. In reality, to quote just one uh, headline from today's Sri Lankan papers, a front-page headline said that the Commonwealth should not be judgmental, says Rajapaksa. Well, that's a pretty defensive headline, frankly. That wasn't the kind of headline he expected to see. He is feeling on the back foot. In Malati says from her point of view, the New Zealand government did not take a strong enough stance on Sri Lanka. At least some Western government heads have said something, but New Zealand and Australia were probably the most uh, shocking in that sense. You know, that I guess they had their own reasons for doing it, like the milk production in for New Zealand and the board people for Australia are bigger issues than the actual condition in which people live there. But the, I don't think they took it anywhere near what they should have done. I don't know whether it's just now or it has always been the case that New Zealand has always been too soft on Sri Lanka. The Prime Minister John Key had a 15-minute meeting with President Rajapaksa. Afterwards, he told reporters discussion about human rights dominated. So the President went through a range of different things that are happening, the investments taking place, uh, the commitment he's got, the relationship he's establishing with the Tamil leader in the north, uh, how he sees things progressing from here. But I think it's fair to say, I mean, it's a complex issue. There's a lot that's happened over the course of a very bloody civil war. These things won't be resolved overnight. Uh, we directly raised quite a lot of issues with him and you know, he's obviously conscious of those and conscious of the criticism that's um, being labelled towards them. We spoke to women who have had sons abducted and haven't seen them yep. and there are abductions reported as a little as three days ago. They yep. said that one of the, the ways that they might be able to either have their sons returned and stop future abductions is through international pressure. So what's your message to them? Well, we directly raised that point of abductions and missing people. I said, look, my cameraman was in the north two days ago. He's filmed people that are making those claims and what is the you know, President's response to that. And he very directly came back and, and disputed that. He said we have a, a process that's established. Every single person who believes that someone is missing is registered and they go through a variety of different mechanisms to identify where that person is if they can. Now I can't verify you know, all of that. I know there's very heavy military presence up there. Um, I can't say that that is absolutely correct in terms of what the President's saying nor can I actually prove it's wrong. Um, but what is he is very conscious of is that everyone is looking at that, monitoring that, and that message of those that believe that these human rights uh, breaches are still occurring is 
very much on the international radar screen. Since then, Sri Lanka has relented somewhat to international pressure and has agreed to start counting the number of people who died during the 26-year civil war. About 16,000 officials will fan out across the country in an operation the government says will take about six months to complete. But the government concedes it won't be able to give a full picture of the scale of losses, saying that if somebody's whole family died or fled the country, then nobody will be there to give their details. The next opportunity for further pressure to be brought against Sri Lanka is in March when the Human Rights Commission meets to assess its progress. I'm Jane Patterson and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight.